Section 15 of The Wars of the Roses by Robert Balmain Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 10 The Battle of Northampton. When Warwick and the other two earls came back to England, they came with every chance of success. They knew that in the southeast of England at least, public opinion would be on their side. They had already, before leaving Calais, sent to the archbishop a document stating explicitly the faults of the Lancastrian government. These statements were to a great extent true. The earls mentioned that the church was oppressed, that the crown revenues were raised in an unequal manner, that the best men were not chosen as the king's advisers, and that England was not safeguarded from her foreign enemies. These charges against the Lancastrian government would find an echo in the hearts of many people. The document, of course, omitted all the points that might be said in favor of the Lancastrian government, the good intentions of the king, the promotion of learning, the endeavor to crush the ambitions of overmighty subjects. Yet, after making all allowances, the fact remains that the kingdom was being ruined for lack of firmness and good counsel at the head. Certain it is that the three earls came back to England with the church on their side. A legate from Pope Pius II, Francesco Copini, Bishop of Terni, had visited England in 1459 to arrange with Henry VI that England might send representatives to Mantua for a general council of the church, which was to consider measures for opposing the advance of the Turks upon Europe. But although eminent representatives, lay and clerical, were chosen, they were prevented from going by the troubled condition of England. So the legate was returning to Italy by way of Calais, where he spoke with the Earl of Warwick. Copini had seen the distracted condition of England, and had failed to get help from the Lancastrian government. He now thought that the Earl of Warwick might achieve for him what Henry VI had failed to do. The present earl's father-in-law, likewise Earl of Warwick and Captain of Calais, had gone forty-five years before to the great council at Constance. Perhaps the legate hoped that the present earl might go to Mantua with equally fortunate results. Anyhow, the legate came back to England with Warwick, who thus might be said to have made his venture under the banner of the universal church. The church in England, too, showed itself almost equally favorable. The three earls pursued their way through Kent, from Sandwich to Canterbury, from Canterbury to Rochester, increasing as they went, till when they reached Blackheath their numbers were twenty thousand men. At Southwark they were met by William Gray, Bishop of Ely, and George Neville, Warwick's brother, Bishop of Exeter. The bishops had a large following of Londoners. As the combined multitude pressed over the bridge from Southwark to the north side, three hundred men who stumbled and fell were crushed to death, unable to rise owing to the weight of their armor and the density of the multitude. Thomas Birchier, Archbishop of Canterbury, with the bishops of London, Lincoln, and Salisbury, was in London too welcoming the newcomers when he had received their oath in St. Paul's that they intended nothing against their allegiance to Henry VI. The whole of London was at their disposal, 
except the tower which was held for the king by Lord Scales, along with Lord Lovell, Lord Hungerford, and Thomas Thorpe. Warwick could not stay to besiege the tower, for the king was drawing toward London through the Midlands with a strong army. On Thursday and Friday, July 3rd and 4th, 1460, conferences were held between the Confederate earls and the civic authorities. Finally, it was arranged that the Earl of Salisbury, Lord Cobham, who had joined the earls in Kent, and Sir John Wenlock would remain behind to blockade the tower along with forces supplied by the mayor and aldermen. Lord Cobham and one body of citizens under the sheriffs planted artillery against the tower on the north side. Sir John Wenlock, with another body of citizens under a mercer called John Harrow, planted theirs on the side of St. Catharines by the river. The garrison of the tower had artillery, too, and a good deal of harm was done on both sides. The besiegers patrolled the river to prevent the garrison having any communications outside, but one day a Yorkist knight was captured on the river by some men of the garrison, and being taken into the tower, he was broken limb by limb. Meanwhile, the Earl of Warwick, with a large force, had marched out to encounter the king. The army traveled along the Great North Road, gaining some valuable reinforcements as it went. At St. Albans, four hundred archers from Lancashire joined the main body. The season was rainy, but Warwick, who made a point of moving rapidly, pushed on with the mounted men so as to come near the royal camp as soon as possible, and to prevent men from coming to join the king. On the 8th, he was within six miles of Northampton, where the royal army was encamped. In two days, his foot soldiers had joined him. Warwick was accompanied by the spiritual peers who had adopted his side in London. These made an attempt at pacification to avoid the effusion of blood by sending the Bishop of Salisbury to treat with the king. But it is difficult to see what terms he could offer which would have induced both sides to disband their warlike forces and to be at peace. The king could scarcely, with any dignity, discuss terms with rebels who stood with arms in their hands. The Bishop of Salisbury returned, apparently without having seen the king. So, on July 10th, which was a Thursday, Warwick advanced to the attack. Although it is impossible to estimate the numbers correctly, it seems clear that the Yorkist forces were numerically superior. The king's army was strongly encamped in a meadow outside Northampton called the Newfield. This meadow on the south side of the Nen was partially surrounded by the river. Thus the king's army was strongly placed, with the river on three sides and an entrenchment in front. Before beginning the battle, Warwick issued an order that in the fight the common soldiers of the enemy should be spared, and that only the lords, knights, and squires, as being responsible for the war, should be slain. Then the attack began. The Yorkist army was in three divisions. The first battle was led by Edward, Earl of March, the second or main body by Warwick himself, the third or rear guard by Lord Falkenberg. The division of the Earl of March came up to the entrenchment, which consisted of a ditch and a long mound rendered almost unscalable by stakes and brushwood, which had been fixed on it. But at this critical moment, 
while the men of Edward of March were hesitating to rush at the fosse, Lord Grey of Ruthen, one of the king's men, appeared from within with his company above the mound, stretching out their hands and offering to draw the Yorkists up into the camp. In a moment, the Yorkists were over the mound and rushed on, sweeping away the few men who stood there to defend it. The treachery of Lord Grey had really made resistance on the part of the king's men impossible. It is by no means unlikely that Warwick knew what was likely to happen before he entered the battle. In spite of the large numbers engaged on either side and of the completeness of the victory, there were only three hundred killed. Of these, some were killed as they fought, others were drowned either in the ditch or the river as they fled. The Duke of Buckingham, who under the king had been commander of the royal army, was killed standing beside his tent. He was a disinterested man who had gained the respect of all parties and so was eminently fitted to serve the king. But his ability was not great enough to guide his master through a difficult time. The Earl of Shrewsbury, Lord Beaumont, and Lord Egremont also were slain. The rout offered an opportunity to anyone who had a private enmity to satisfy. Sir William Lucy, who lived besides Northampton, heard the gunshots and came on to the field to help his king when the rout was beginning. But John Stafford, a Yorkist esquire who loved Sir William Lucy's wife, saw him come on to the field and went and killed him. Shortly afterwards, Stafford married the knight's widow. When the battle was over, the three lords, Warwick, March, and Falkenberg, approached the royal tent, where they found the king sitting alone and solitary. He seems to have taken no active part in the battle, nor to have made any attempt to escape in the rout. The three lords bowed to the ground. Then, with many reverent and comforting words, they sought to console him. At length, when the king seemed to be comforted and to breathe more easily, they led him with every show of reverence and honor to the town of Northampton. On the next day, July 11th, the king and the lords attended mass and partook of the sacrament. Then they all rode to London, where the king was given a stately reception by the citizens and clergy as he rode in, attended by the Earl of March on one side and the Earl of Warwick bearing the king's sword on the other. He took up his lodging in the house of the Bishop of London. It may be remembered that this was the house in which he lodged when he came to London in May 1455, after his capture at the Battle of St. Albans. But afterwards he went down, under surveillance, no doubt, lest he should escape to the Queen, to Eltham and to Greenwich, to divert himself with some hunting until the meeting of Parliament. The chief opponents of the Yorkists had not been present at the Battle of Northampton. The Queen and the young Prince Edward were at Eccles Hall in Staffordshire. On receiving news of the defeat of the king, she gathered her baggage and fled with her son towards Chester. A certain John Cleager, a retainer of Lord Stanley, waylaid her and attempted to capture her. But she escaped, although her own servants did not scruple to turn against her and rob her of all her goods and jewels. She went with her son into Wales, where Jasper Tudor, Earl of Pembroke, won Denby Castle and gave her a refuge. There she remained through the autumn and gathered a party of Lancastrian gentlemen, among whom was the Duke of Exeter. 
At the end of the year she went to Scotland, where the royal family, which was connected with the Beaufort branch of the Lancastrians, received her kindly. Margaret did not scruple to promise to deliver up the important town and fortress of Berwick in return for their alliance. Other great lords were not present at Northampton. The king had not collected all his forces when Warwick offered battle. The Duke of Somerset, the Earl of Wiltshire, the Earl of Northumberland, Lord Clifford, who were among the greatest of Lancastrian magnates, were all absent. On July 18th, the tower was surrendered by Lord Scales on condition that he himself and Lord Hungerford should go free, while the rest should stand their trial. Seven of the garrison, who were in the service of the Duke of Exeter, were convicted by a jury of citizens and beheaded at Tyburn. Their offence seems to have been that, having served Warwick when he was admiral, they had accepted the Duke of Exeter when Warwick was superseded. Thomas Thorpe, the former Lancastrian speaker, who had helped to defend the tower, was still kept a prisoner. He made one attempt to escape and succeeded in getting out, but was brought back. His head was shaven, and he was lodged again in the tower. On Sunday the 20th, following the surrender of the tower, Lord Scales was sent by the new custodians, Sir John Wenlock and John Harrow the Mercer, in a barge up the river to Westminster, where he could take sanctuary. But he was stopped by some shipmen in the service of Warwick and March. He was taken to the bank, just below the wall of the house of the Bishop of Winchester, and there slain. William of Worcester saw his body lying stripped of all clothing in the cemetery near the porch of the church of St. Mary of Overy in Southwark. The body lay for some hours naked as a worm on the ground. At length, it was honorably buried at the orders of the earls of March and Warwick. On hearing of the murder of Lord Scales, Warwick had at once ridden to the tower and there made a proclamation, repeated through all the city, that no one should slay, steal, or murder on pain of death. But the proclamation came too late. Lord Scales had surrendered himself into the safekeeping of the earls. Warwick must have known how violent and cruel his shipmen were, and he should have taken precautions to preserve his prisoner's life. The murder of Lord Scales is of the same sort as the murder of the Lancastrian Duke of Suffolk by the shipmen of Kent in 1450. The Yorkists had won all that they claimed. The Duke of York was still in Ireland, but Warwick was well able to settle everything that was necessary. He had re-established himself and his party in England. The only other thing immediately necessary was to change the ministry which had hitherto guided the king. Accordingly, two good Yorkists were appointed to the chief positions. George Neville, Bishop of Exeter, a brother of Warwick, was made Chancellor, and Lord Berkshire became Treasurer. It might have been expected that the Yorkists, having set up a ministry from their own party, would proceed to clear the country of such of their great enemies as were left or else bring them to terms. Then supporting the king with their strong arm, they might have secured to the country peace and order. But York had not yet returned from Ireland, and Parliament would not meet till October 7th. The final settlement of the nation's affairs had not yet been reached. End of Section 15